Hi everyone, I want to talk to you about something I actually just found out about. A friend of mine sent me this video and they had said to me, they're like, you need to watch this. This screams you. And surprisingly enough, this is about a person that I was completely ignorant of, which irritates me to no end, if we're being honest with each other. And I was actually blown away that I didn't know anything about this person because this is like next level. And it surprises me that like her name isn't known more because of what happened. And this is why I think this is one of those stories that does need to be told. And honestly, this story dates from 890 AD and we still have information, accurate information on this person. So, I mean, this wasn't like a passing thing. This woman did so much to get her name on the record book that de facto she achieved immortality. We're still talking about this woman to this day. So, I want to talk to you about Olga of Kiev. And she is actually a venerated saint, which it takes a lot to become a saint. And as I started doing research on her, it really surprised me that this woman was a saint. So let's get into it. If you're new here, this is Murder, Mystery, and History. My name's Christy. So when we talk about Olga of Kiev, we don't have an actual birth date because it, you know, in, the, in those days, it wasn't commonplace and morality was very high, especially in children. And you were considered a spinster if you weren't married by like age 20. So that speaks volumes on how women were treated. So Olga's, Olga's actual date of birth is unknown. It could be anywhere from 890 AD to 925 AD. What we do know is Olga descended of Viking birth. So, I mean, her ancestors, if you can go back that far, apparently they could hear, um, were, were Vikings. And as our tale goes forward, that kind of makes a little bit of perfect sense. What we do know is she was born in Pleshkov, and really we don't know much about her childhood or how she was raised, honestly. What we can guess if we know the Dark Ages, which this would be considered Dark Ages, is she was probably skilled in woman's art, such as needlework, cooking, how to run a household, dancing, etc. We can safely guess along with that that she probably came from a good family of nobility. And her family was able to broker a good marriage for her. So, in that time, again, life expectancy was pretty short. Very short. So, in that breath, when we know that the life expectancy is sh so short, we do know that when she got married, the oldest she would have been was 15. And that really is the highest age we can safely guess. So, I mean, she could have been married anywhere from... 10 to 15. We're going to err on the side of caution and hope she was 15 when she got married, but that's that's where we're at with that. So Olga marries a man named Igor, and he was the son of the founder of the Rurik dynasty in Russia. So he was able to consolidate power over other tribes and establish a capital in Kiev. So when I say other tribes at that point in time in history, Russia was built of tribes. It wasn't one ruler to rule them all kind of thing. We had separate warring tribes. So Igor's father was able to consolidate his power 
and establish a little bit of a nation, so to speak. And he would rule what is now parts of Russia, Ukraine, and Belarus. And in that sense, things would seem pretty good for Olga. She's got a lot of security. I mean, she doesn't really have to do any menial labor. Like, she can just kind of sit back and learn to be a princess. So, And by all standards, I mean, she would have had servants. She would have lived what was a life of luxury then. And so she would have pr probably been getting taught how to rule as a wife next to her husband, Igor, if she appropriately behaved. And, I mean, by all standards, she would have been treated as a king or empress in training of sorts. A princess. So one of the things that she did to secure her position was something that was perilous in those times. When we talk about childbirth, especially in the 900 AD period, it was, it was dangerous up until early 19th century. More women die in childbirth alone in these time frames than anything else. So, in that sense, she ends up producing a son for her husband. So now, not only has she this giant sense of security and she's getting trained to be an empress or queen or whatever, she's literally done her due diligence as a woman, as a wife. She's produced an heir for her husband. So, I mean, this is when things start to go south for the pair. Her son's maybe three. And her husband's father, Oleg, Igor's father ends up dying but they had a tribe near them called the Drevlians and before Igor's father died they were paying tribute to him in goods and money and, and services and this was pretty common and this was common for quite a long time in human history so Oleg dies now and the Drevlians kind of going back and forth and they're deciding you know what we're not going to give Igor and Oleg any money why should we you know Oleg's dead. We're not. We're not going to give him any money. So the Drevlin, the Drevlins, which were a race of people from Dreva, decide to side with the local warlord. They gave him the goods and the money and everything else they had been giving Oleg. Now Igor's pissed off because this is his tribute, is what they called it. And why are they giving it to somebody else? How dare they? So Igor amasses an army, and he wants to assert his dominance over the Drevlin. So he gathers this large army and demands tribute to Kivian Rus, which is what he ruled over with his wife, Olga, now. So he has this huge army, he has this huge army, and literally the Drevlins are like, uh, okay, sorry about that. Here's our tribute. Can you go away? So Igor leaves and then decides, you know what, I had to come all this way just for this just for this measly tribute, they need to give me more. So in what can be characterized as an absolute horrific and bad idea, Igor decides to go back with a small escort and not the huge army to get a larger tribute. So now the Drevlins see this and he's weakened. He doesn't have this large army. So they end up torturing him and murdering Igor. So the running story whether it's fact or not, we'll never know at this point in time. But generally how it is told that Igor was tied to two tree trunks and he was torn apart in two. Again, we don't know that's fact. There is some dispute over that in the historical community. 
But that's kind of the end of Igor's part of the story. What we do know is he was murdered, and things got really serious really quick for Olga. So 20 Drevlins end up sailing to Kiev to give her the message her first husband's dead. We murdered him, and you should marry our prince, the man who literally orchestrated and murdered your husband, the head honcho, Prince Mal. Now, not only would this be offensive, and it would be offensive, especially to a now widowed woman who has had not a chance to grieve, it would mean that if she married this man, that her son would probably be murdered too, and that if he wasn't any child that she was impregnated with, would be considered the heir after any children that Prince Mal would have already had. So now it's like, are you fucking kidding me? Absolutely offensive on all parts. Not only would Egg Olga have found this offensive, this would literally actually be marking her honor as a woman. This would be considered as disregarding her honor as a person. And that's not something that Olga would stand for. So generally speaking, in this time and age, love matches did not happen. And it was very, very, very rare if you were married and you found a love match. What we do know about that is most marriages were for land, money, riches, how close you could get to the throne, etc. Most women ended up were happy to be widows, especially rich ones. You get to keep your land and money, have no one to tell you what to do, you don't have to keep pumping out kids. You know, generally speaking, widows were considered higher up on the rank and they were considered untouchable. And they got to keep everything. It was either this or a nunnery for a lot of women. So most women were happy to be widows. Now, that being said, Olga is now the first female ruler of Kiev. And in an instant, she knows now she has to keep the throne safe for her son because he's only three or four. What we do know is she will avenge her husband's death. Brutally. And that's kind of where the brutality starts, is avenging Igor's death. It's not only about avenging Igor, it's about keeping the throne safe and keeping herself safe. Because perhaps we can imagine that Olga felt some degree of love about for Igor, or sorrow about his death. Now, Igor's been murdered, and she has this large amount of land people, this was Russia after all, they did believe in serfdom, and riches. And what was actually common for wealthy widows was to be kidnapped, raped, and forced to marry someone so their new husband could get their hands on all that was the woman's. And that is something that was also very common up until the early 1900s, believe it or not. So let's get back to Olga. We had a little brief history there about how history has treated women so shabbily. So now Olga hears that her husband's dead and she's supposed to marry this Prince Mal. And this is unthinkable for her because really in the space of an hour, let's say, she's holding court and hears all of this. But what we can surmise is Olga was quick on her feet. So this is apparently what she said. And again, because it is so long ago, we have to take this with a grain of salt. It stated, she said, Your proposal is pleasing to me. Indeed, my husband cannot rise again from the dead. 
but I desire to honor you tomorrow in the presence of my people. Return now to your boat and remain there with an aspect of arrogance. I shall send for you on the morrow, and you shall say, We will not ride on horses nor go on foot. Carry us in our boat, and you shall be carried in your boat. Now these 20 men think they're getting some super, super high honor in Kiev, and they're so excited. So the next day, these 20 guys show up at our court, and they say what they were told to say. So the people of Kiev lift their boat out of the water, and they're carrying these 20 men up and with this on top of this boat. So these men are on the boat, and they're carrying these men in the boat through the streets. Of so the men, while this is happening, believe that, like, this is some great honor. They can't wait to get back to Dreva and tell everyone how Kiev treated them. This is awesome. Cool. So they get back to Olga's court. The night before, Olga ordered a large trench to be dug. And the boat and the 20 men were dropped into this trench. And these men are confused. They don't understand what's going on. They think maybe they're hazing us. Maybe this is a joke. Maybe this is some sort of their, their ritual that they have to do. No, the people in Olga's court were ordered to start burying the men alive on top of this boat. And it's been stated that Olga bent down watching them while they were being buried alive. And she's quoted to have said these words directly to the men while they were being buried alive. Did they find this honor to their taste? So this speaks volumes on her character. Like who she was as a woman, who she was as a wife. Whether or not this was in... Igor's name or she was protecting the throne for her son Olga was just getting started this is not the end of the bloodshed so she writes to the Drevlins after this after she's buried 20 men alive and she says to them I want you to send the most esteemed and distinguished men to Kiev I want to show them the riches of my land and they don't know that the diplomatic party that was sent to Kiev prior was buried alive so the Drevlins gathered their best men, and these are men who were governors through the Drevlin land. And Olga plans this elaborate welcoming right at the, the port, and she says to them, You know, you guys look tired and dirty. I don't want you in my court until you've had a chance to properly bathe. I don't want you in my court until you've had a chance to properly bathe. And the men sit there, and they're like, Oh, yeah, that's a, that's a fantastic idea. Yeah, we'll do that. Olga suggests that they go to the bathhouse that's right by the port and she commands her people to prepare the bathhouse for them and she waits until every person from Kiev is out of that bathhouse these men are happy they thank her they're using the bathhouse they're using the amenities and they start preparing for what they might think is their future queen and they're probably extolling her virtue and praising her once all the men are in the bathhouse Olga locks the doors. She makes sure there's no way to get out of that bathhouse. Then she has it set on fire, with the doors leading in and out locked. So all these men are literally being set on fire and dying. So this isn't enough for Olga. Not yet. So she sends another message to the Drevlins. And she says, you know, I want you to prepare this funeral feast in the city where you killed my husband. I want to weep over his grave. I want to hold a funeral feast for him. Now, 
this is a time when Christianity was making it or breaking it throughout various places in Europe and Russia. And a funeral feast is definitely something that would have been considered pagan by this time period. But Olga is not a Christian at this time. She still follows the old faith and she wants to hold a funeral feast. So the Drevlins are, are thinking, okay, yeah, after this, she's going to marry our prince. She just needs to, you know, do this to just give her husband peace in the afterlife. So they're like, yeah, let's have a funeral feast for Igor. So when Olga gets to Dreva, she has a small escort with her. She sees her husband's tomb. She weeps, demands to hold a funeral feast. So the Drevlins decide, hey, yeah, we killed this guy, but let's attend the funeral feast. We're his murderers. What the hell? Let's just crash this funeral. Olga was expecting this. So the Drevlins get absolutely annihilated from the wine and the mead that's at this funeral feast. They don't care. It's not somebody they care about. So what the hell? Let's just get drunk. So Olga doesn't drink that night. Drevlins do. Her escort, her, her group of escorts that are with her don't drink. So, now the, Dre the Drevlins are absolutely wasted. Her group starts killing them one by one. Olga's walking around, watching them kill these guys, and she's egging them on. She's praising her escort, be more violent with them. Go for the throat. Go for the eyes. So now, Olga, in essence, has started a war. And initially, Olga has the winning edge in this war against the Drevlins, and it stretches out into a year. She has seized and captured multiple cities. But it's just the last one, and the Drevlins are holding out. So Olga decided she's going to win this war. And she will do whatever it is to win this war. Nothing will stop her. And I think this is probably one of the smartest things that's ever thought of her strategy. So she sends this message to the Drevlins, and she goes, why, why are you holding out? Like, all your cities have surrendered to me and submitted tribute. You know, the in, everybody who lived in those cities can cultivate their fields. They can live in peace. But here you are, holed up in this last stronghold, and you're, you'd rather die of hunger without submitting tribute. Like, what's wrong with you? You can make me go away. Just submit tribute, the money and the goods. That's all I want. That's all Igor wanted. So the Drevlins write back and they say, you know, we'll send tribute so you'll leave with your army, but are you going to seek vengeance again for murdering her husband? And in essence, when she had sent her message, she's saying that, you know, had you have done what my husband asked, I wouldn't be here. So Olga answers their, their message saying, you know, I murdered the messengers sent to Kiev as well as the events of the feast night and as well as the bathhouse murders. She says, you know what? I've murdered everybody I need to for Igor, but all I want for tribute is give me three pigeons and three sparrows from each house. And the Drevlins go, that's it? All right, yeah, uh, yeah, we'll get that for you. Everybody will, will get their pigeons and their sparrows and yeah, for such a small price. Yeah, of course, we'll do that. For so here's where the pure genius plays out. And I, it's just genius, in my opinion. So in 900 AD, houses would usually have that straw or hay on top of the houses for insulation. 
and I mean it was cheap it was effective it was easy to use you could find it in the field this was very popular and very easy to find and very easy to use birds would lay eggs there they would nest there it was you know it was perfect it was cheap it was easy to use but it was flammable very 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 flammable so the Drevlin sent Olga these birds and she and her army will attach sulfur cloth like sulfur bound cloths on their legs and here's the thing that birds do when they get scared they fly back to their nest they go home and where did these birds live on those thatched straw hay roofs so at nightfall Olga orders her army to light the sulfur cloths on fire that they attach to the birds the birds fly back to the city where their nests are on the straw thatched house the entire city is a flame because it's virtually impossible to put out the flame because every home was set on fire almost instantly as the people are fleeing the burning city Olga has her soldiers catch them kill some of them but not all of them others were given as slaves she left anyone who was alive after those houses were burned down they had to pay her tribute so Olga remains the ruler of Kievan Rus with the support of her army and her people and she actually changes the system of tributes and all while doing this she changes the first legal reform recorded in Eastern Europe much like Elizabeth I she's able to evade proposals of marriage she defends the city there's a siege of Kiev and she ends up saving Kiev for her son like it is insane she ends up transforming the countryside through this siege of the Drevlins by subjecting them by winning the war she's able to create laws tributes and she actually creates training posts and hunting reserves and there might be some trace of them still we don't know it's really a rumor that we're still able to find her training posts but we're, we're gonna get to that in a sec when we talk about Olga we talk like the whole thing about being able to like in 9 9 whatever AD being able to save the throne for her son is a remarkable feat absolutely remarkable so here is where she becomes a saint so she ends up going to Constantine which is Byzantinium at this time it's somewhere in Eastern Turkey if memory calls me and she goes to get baptized by the Emperor there and she ends up converting to Christianity and what's interesting is the Emperor the Emperor afterwards says to Olga I want you to marry me let's get married we can create this gigantic empire and we can rule with a Christian fist and Olga says to him how can you marry me because you stood as my godfather during the baptism you yourself baptized me you yourself converted me to Christianity for as you know sir among Christians that's unlawful because it's a form of spiritual incest so now she's outwitting men to not marry so all the while she's 
saving Russia in her eyes. And what she does is when she goes back to Kiev after traveling to Constantine, she's trying to get her son to become a Christian. And, you know, he doesn't want to do it, but if any man wants to be baptized, he doesn't care. But they'll be mocked. And he thinks that the Christian faith is foolish because he just, he prefers the old ways. So Olga, throughout the rest of her life, tries to convert Christianity into Russia and bring others into the fold of God. She seems unsuccessful in doing so, though, but she never gave up, and she keeps trying. She keeps trying to anyone who will listen to become a Christian. She goes so far to say to her son, if you convert to Christianity, the rest of the nation will. And he laughs at her, and he's like, no, no, I'm going to keep with the old ways. Christianity thing is not for me. Olga ends up building churches in Kiev, and all over Kiev in Rush. Russ, pardon me. She builds all these churches and she's trying so hard. Unfortunately, though, her son says to her, you know what? I'm done talking about this. You know, I, I'm not doing this. And he, he announces these plans to move his throne to the Danube region. And Olga convinces him to stay because she feels like she's in her final days. And she doesn't want him to leave her. And she just says, can you just stay with me? Please. So her son stays for the next three days, and Olga actually dies three days later. So all of Kievian Rus is mourning for this woman. And she died probably for, in 969 AD. So we can surmise that she did not live quite a full life. If she was indeed born in 925, she would have only been 44 years old. But since we have the differing dates, she was born in 890. She would have been 79, but that's 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 doubtful at this point. So she ends up dying three days later after begging her son, who has been king for quite a long time. And her son, for his part, weeps for her with great mourning. And he calls his sons and his people, and they all carry her out and buried her in a tomb. And the one thing, despite the fact that he wasn't... The devotee of Christianity, he would allow that her personal priest would come and give her the last rites, and he he did disapprove of his mother's religion, and somehow he allowed her priest to conduct a Christian funeral, and they did not have the pagan burial feast. And her tomb would actually remain in Kiev for over two centuries, but it was destroyed by the Mongolian Tartar enemies enemies, pardon me, Mongolian Tartar armies of Batu Khan in 1240. When we talk about her sainthood, we talk about the fact that she tried to bring Christianity to Kievan Rus, which is now Russia, parts of Russia. And it wasn't until her grandson was in power that he started bringing Christianity into Russia. What's interesting to note is Saints have their own feast day. Hers would be July 11th. And in keeping what we know about Olga, she's the patron saint of widows and converts. So she would be the saint in any East Slavic-speaking countries, Eastern Orthodox churches, especially Russian Orthodox, Greek Catholic churches, and Ukrainian Greek Catholic churches. 
and any church with Byzantinian rites, specifically in Lutheranism, and she would be a saint in Western Catholics in Russia. But what's interesting to me is when we see pictures of her, we always see her with birds on fire. That's that's the choice they chose to uh, use as her saint pick. If you look up Olga of Kiev, you will automatically see pictures of her with birds on fire and a scowl on her face. These are the pictures that somehow spanned time and century to be with us. And that really is the story of Olga of Kiev. So when we talk about Olga, we talk about all these things. And it's so crazy to me that she ended up becoming a saint. So the best praise that I can ever get is if you share the podcast with a friend. You can follow me on Spotify, Anchor, Google Podcasts, CastBox, Pocket Casts, Radio Public, and Overcast. If you want to send me an email, if there's some weird random fact that you want to know about murder, mystery, and history at email.com, at gmail.com. You can also follow me on Facebook at Murder, Mystery, and History. It'll have the same profile picture as the podcast. And you can also tweet me at Murder, Mystery, and History. But are we still using Twitter? I don't know. It's whole Elon Musk thing. I don't know. But until we meet again. <laughs>